Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We touched really, really, really briefly on today's topic way back when we did our condensed history of Rhodesia. It is Great Zimbabwe, which is a huge stone city in what's now southeastern Zimbabwe, and it's been on my to-do list for that entire time. We also recently, I'm not quite sure if the letters were from the same person or if people were just copying and pasting the same text, but we got multiple identical requests for it. (laughs) There you go. From different email addresses. So uh, (laughs) I moved up the list after that. Uh, in a way, Great Zimbabwe has multiple histories. Obviously, there is the history of its founding and its construction and the people who originally lived there. But then there's also this completely separate and 100% incorrect history that European explorers and colonists sort of bestowed upon it. And this was a history that insisted that Great Zimbabwe in southeastern Africa had not been built by Africans. So today... We're going to talk about the site itself and how, uh, what we know uh, about its construction and who lived there. And then we're also going to talk about these first colonial histories that were written about it and how they were so colossally wrong uh, and the damage that came from that. Great Zimbabwe, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, was most likely inhabited all the way back to the year 100. But from the 11th to the 15th centuries, it was a large, thriving city. And the word Zimbabwe means the house in stone, though it's also sometimes translated as sacred house or royal house. The descriptor of great distinguishes Great Zimbabwe from smaller stone cities in the area. It's one of about 150 major stone ruin sites in Zimbabwe and Mozambique. There is some debate about exactly which sub-Saharan African people built Great Zimbabwe. The most commonly cited are the Shona, who were a Bantu-speaking people who migrated into the area from the Sahara Desert sometime around the 9th century. The Shona people still exist today, with a population of between 10 and 13 million, living primarily in Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Botswana, Zambia, and the uh, northern parts of South Africa. There are multiple cultural groups and dialects of the Shona language within this population. Although Great Zimbabwe itself is a ruin now, Shona people still living in the area do view it as a sacred site and use it for spiritual purposes. But there are other Bantu-speaking peoples suggested as Great Zimbabwe's builders as well, including the Venda and the Lemba. Lemba burial traditions are similar to those practiced at Great Zimbabwe. And they were also known for being traders, and Great Zimbabwe was an active trading hub. Even so, the Shona are the most commonly cited, and in many discussions of Great Zimbabwe, they're actually the only people that get mentioned. The Great Zimbabwe ruins, as they exist today, are roughly described in three areas. There are the hill ruins or the hill complex, the Great Enclosure, and the valley ruins or valley complex. The hill ruins are along a very steep hill that rises 262 feet, which is about 80 meters, above the surrounding landscape. The hill ruins were home to Great Zimbabwe's ruling class, and through archaeological evidence, we know that the hill ruins were occupied pretty much continually from the 11th to the 15th centuries. 
The hill ruins were basically a royal city, built from both shaped granite blocks and natural boulders. Regardless of which was used, they were built without mortar, and very narrow, sometimes covered passageways connected the different structures. Two walled enclosures, which are both pretty large, are part of the hill ruins. The west enclosure uh, was most likely where the chiefs lived. The east enclosure's purpose is a little bit less clear, although excavations revealed that it contained a collection of soapstone posts about a meter tall, all carved with or all topped with carvings of birds. So it clearly had some kind of specific purpose. It might have been religious or ceremonial. And these soapstone birds are now known as Zimbabwe birds, and they're represented on Zimbabwe's flag. And also many smaller versions of these birds have been found on the site as well. Also part of the hill ruins is a shallow cave that was probably reserved for the use of the king. In addition to providing shelter and a view of the surrounding countryside, the shape of the cave and the surrounding hills basically creates a natural PA system. So a shout from the cave would echo from the hills and be audible by anyone in Great Zimbabwe. The Great Enclosure, which lies to the south of the hill ruins, is the largest ancient structure in sub-Saharan Africa. It probably served one of two purposes. It was either the royal residence or a temple. So if the Great Enclosure was the royal residence, then the hill ruins were sort of the greater royal city, where other uh, people in the ruling class lived, but not necessarily the king and his immediate family. The Great Enclosure itself is encircled by a huge elliptical wall that runs for 820 feet, that's about 250 meters, in places flanked by an inner parallel wall. And the walls are made of granite blocks, and they're quite tall. Uh, the Great Wall is 36 feet, which is 11 meters-ish at the tallest. And these walls aren't squared off or rectangular at all. They're actually a series of curves. The builders of Great Zimbabwe built these curving walls out of square and rectangular granite blocks. The granite slabs that are part of the area's natural landscape split along straight lines when you break them, which made it possible to shape them into these regularly shaped square or rectangular forms. These walls were built in curves by placing the blocks one on top of the other and positioned so that the wall itself would have a slight inward slope that would help keep it stable. Even though these walls look quite imposing, it's likely that they were built as a show of strength, not as an active defense. Regardless of their purpose, though, they're a true feat of craftsmanship and engineering. Within the great enclosure are smaller walls separating the living areas for different families. And most of these areas include two living huts, a kitchen, and a common area. One of the most distinctive features of the Great Enclosure, besides that enormous and impressive encircling wall, is a large conical tower. And its purpose is unknown, but it resembles a grain bin. It's thought to have had a religious or possibly symbolic purpose. At both the hill ruins and the Great Enclosure, there are smaller structures like living quarters that were made from daga. Daga is a type of earthen brick made from uh, granite sand and clay. Originally, the Daga structures might have been almost imposing as the stone walls are, but because they were made of clay instead of stone, they've been subject to a lot more weathering and decay over the the centuries that have passed since they were built. Today, most of the Daga structures have been reduced down to mounds rather than being recognizable as what they were originally, originally built to be. 
The valley ruins, as their name suggests, stretch out through the valley. They're newer than the rest of Great Zimbabwe, with some of the structures dating as recently as the 19th century. And these new structures are brick rather than stone blocks. The valley ruins would have been home to Great Zimbabwe's citizens, with the great enclosure and the hill complex reserved for the royalty and upper social class. From the 11th to the 15th century, Great Zimbabwe was an active, thriving, functioning city with a population of up to 18,000 people, making it the largest city in southern Africa at the time. Its artisans and craftspeople were particularly skilled at both stonework and making pottery. Many of the artifacts at the site were carved soapstone, like small statues, figures, decorated bowls, things like that. It was also an agricultural society, cultivating crops and raising cattle, both for food and as a symbol of the ruling class's wealth. In addition, Great Zimbabwe, as we mentioned before, was a huge trading hub, in part because it was positioned between gold mines and the coast. Archaeologists have found beads, porcelain, glassware, and other materials that came from China, Persia, and India there. There are also coins from the Arab world, so the trading network moving through Great Zimbabwe was enormous and it extended far beyond southern Africa. Eventually, Great Zimbabwe's residents moved, and we will talk about when and why that happened and what happened afterward after a quick sponsor break. So in the late 15th century, Great Zimbabwe was abandoned, at least in terms of a society of people continually living there. Over the course of the city's history, the area around it had been deforested, and eventually there wasn't enough food available to to continue to support its population. The direction of trade had also shifted a little to the north, which left Great Zimbabwe out of a lot of the most commonly used trading routes. A series of civil wars in the area may also have prompted people to relocate as well. So while most or all of Great Zimbabwe's population did relocate, it did continue also to be an important site culturally from a spiritual and a cultural uh, perspective. Many of Great Zimbabwe's population relocated to the city of Kami. And the Kami ruins also still exist in Zimbabwe. Like Great Zimbabwe, they are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Because so many of Great Zimbabwe's residents moved to Kami, Kami's construction and layout have some similarities to Great Zimbabwe's. The same is true for pottery that was made at Kami. It follows a lot of the same techniques as earlier work at Great Zimbabwe. And Kami is basically a later creation of the same culture that built Great Zimbabwe, and it's the second largest stone monument in Zimbabwe after Great Zimbabwe. Europeans started hearing about Great Zimbabwe in the 16th century. One of those first sources was João de Barro, who was a a Portuguese historian who chronicled Portugal's history in Southeast Africa and parts of Asia. He wrote of, quote, a square fortress, masonry within and without, built of stones of marvelous size, and there appears to be no mortar joining them. And even though he says the word square, which uh, Great Zimbabwe is definitely not square, This is usually interpreted as being about Great Zimbabwe, probably based on a description that someone gave to him, not something he had visited himself. Word of this wonder started to spread, mostly through trading ports in Mozambique. Debaro and others who heard about Great Zimbabwe suspected that it was an important historical site. But they thought it was probably Ofer, the site of King Solomon's mines. 
Soon, among European people who were interested in such things, it became basically common knowledge that somewhere in southeastern Africa were biblical ruins. So in 1871, German Karl Mauch set out on an expedition that he hoped would reveal the site of Ophir. In August of that year, he made up with a German trader who described, quote, quite large ruins which could never have been built by blacks. Mock hired a local guide and then reached Zimbabwe on September 5th of that year, becoming at that point the first European known to have actually visited the site. While exploring the ruins, he found some reddish, fragrant wood that resembled the wood of his pencil. And he concluded that it was cedar imported from Lebanon and that it was an import brought to the area by the Phoenicians, who he thought must have built the site for the Queen of Sheba. Uh, it was really sandalwood. It's not what he thought it was. <laughs> just, just one poorly identified piece of wood really steered things completely off course. Yeah. His, uh, his theories that Great Zimbabwe was built by the Phoenicians and had been home to the Queen of Sheba captured the attention of Cecil Rhodes, who we talk about a lot in our past podcast on Rhodesia. Rhodes's views were unquestionably steeped in white supremacy. So when he went to visit the ruins himself in the late 19th century, was described as, quote, the ancient temple, which once upon a time belonged to white men. Rhodes and the British South Africa Company then enlisted J. Theodore Bent to investigate. Bent had an interest in the subject, but no formal training. And like Rhodes and Mauch, approached the task from the point of view that this city had to have been built by white men. He visited Great Zimbabwe with his wife and a man named Robert Swan, who acted as a cartographer. Before even getting to Great Zimbabwe, Bent and his party passed through many of the other stone ruins in the area. Bent even wrote that he added the word great to the name Zimbabwe to distinguish it from all the other smaller Zimbabwe's. But the presence of other similar ruins all around southeastern Africa didn't signal to him that Great Zimbabwe was part of a building tradition of the people still living in the area spanning over centuries. He continued to approach Great Zimbabwe specifically as the work of outsiders, drawing comparisons to ancient cities in Malta, Sardinia, and elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Bent began an excavation that unearthed artifacts that fit right into the context of African archaeology. Weapon points, tools, and pottery were all totally consistent with what should have been expected of a Southeast African civilization. Bent thought the Zimbabwe birds were meant to represent, quote, the Assyrian Astarte, or Venus, namely the female element in creation. And he found it, quote, obvious that, quote, the ruins and the things in them are not in any way connected with any known African race. The objects of art and special cult are foreign altogether to the country. He concluded that the ruins and the furnaces that were there and the walls were all dedicated to the production and the protection of gold. Bent's conclusion, quote, a prehistoric race built the ruins, a northern race coming from Arabia, closely akin to the Phoenician and Egyptian, and eventually developing into the more civilized races of the ancient world. The next effort to study the site was downright damaging from a physical perspective, not just a historical one. Richard Nicklin Hall, a journalist, was appointed as the curator of Great Zimbabwe, and what he was supposed to do was just preserve the structures, not to do further study. 
Instead, he decided to remove the, quote, filth and decadence of the site's occupation by the local black population, and he removed and discarded stratified archaeological deposits to a depth that ranged from 3 to 12 feet. He was fired for this. But unfortunately, the damage uh, of his efforts was done at that point. You can't unring that bell. And he didn't even seem to comprehend that anything that he had done was wrong or damaging. He wrote or co-wrote the books The Ancient Ruins of Rhodesia and Great Zimbabwe, and he delivered a lecture at the African Society on October 12, 1904, in which he described what he'd done as, quote, large areas of the ancient temples were cleared of debris to a considerable depth, and the original floors as well as ancient walls and other structures were disclosed, while prehistoric relics were unearthed, which overwhelmingly proved the extensive practice of nature worship of an exceedingly old cult. He went on to express some chagrin that J. Theodore Bent had only seen the ruins in their, quote, buried condition. He really seems to have genuinely thought that he did the right thing. It was not the right thing. (laughs) That that's how you do archaeology. You go in with a vacuum and a mop (laughs) and you take (laughs) everything away. This is one of the reasons we didn't have as much to share about what life was like in Great Zimbabwe in the first act of the show today. So many of the archaeological findings that could have told us this were destroyed by a man thinking that he was removing, quote, the filth and decadence of the people who had actually built the place and lived there, thinking it had instead been built by white people and that the actual artifacts were instead a contaminant. Most of the analysis made of the site before the the destruction uh, actually happened were also made by people working off of the assumption that what they were looking at was relics from a Phoenician, Egyptian, or Greek civilization that had moved into sub-Saharan Africa, not a sub-Saharan African one. So while there were people who did study of the site before this destruction happened, that study was not archaeologically sound. Yeah, it was all based on a completely incorrect presumption. But the record was finally set mostly straight, and we're going to talk about that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. So, uh, although Richard Nicklin Hall never seemed to grasp what he had done, uh, the fact that he had done real harm was completely understood by the British South Africa company, and they then hired David Randall MacIver to investigate. He, he was an actual archaeologist, and his verdict was that the ruins at Great Zimbabwe, quote, are unquestionably African in every detail and belonging to a period which is fixed by foreign imports as, in general, medieval. So this was in 1905. It was after Europeans had thought that Great Zimbabwe was a biblical city built by someone not from sub-Saharan Africa for hundreds of years, and that it was a Phoenician city built for the Queen of Sheba for decades. Another English archaeologist, Gertrude Caton Thompson, confirmed Randall MacIver's findings in 1929, and she wrote, quote, Examination of all the existing evidence gathered from every quarter still can produce not one single item that is not in accordance with the claim of Bantu origin and medieval date. The interest in Zimbabwe and the Allied ruins should, on this account, to all educated people, be enhanced a hundredfold. 
It enriches, not impoverishes, our wonderment at their remarkable achievement. For the mystery of Zimbabwe is the mystery which lies in the still pulsating heart of native Africa. The idea that Great Zimbabwe was the work of white people rather than Africans persevered, though. White colonial governments in the region were explicitly racist, and they viewed the black population as inferior and, frankly, incapable of building something like Great Zimbabwe. Talking about its real origins became, at best, a touchy subject. During the period in which the nation was known as Rhodesia and was governed specifically as a white supremacist state, the government actively tried to suppress discussion of Great Zimbabwe as an African archaeological and historical site built by Africans. Ian Smith, Rhodesia's prime minister, even commissioned a false history to that end. Eventually, Zimbabwe became an independent nation, with a government that's more representative of its racial demographics. And even so, Great Zimbabwe has continued to face obstacles as a historical site. At various points, people managing the site have undertaken well-meaning but poorly documented attempts to rebuild fallen walls and, you know, other things that naturally happen to hundreds of year old historical sites. After Great Zimbabwe became a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which happened in 1986, the process of conservation and restoration moved to be much more in line with modern standards. But even so, it's far from a perfect process. The spiritual and cultural significance of the site to the Shona and other Bantu-speaking peoples is sometimes at odds with its status as a historical site. For example, That site is now overseen by the National Museums and Monuments of Zimbabwe, which charges admission, which some view as a desecration or a closing off of a site that used to be open and alive. And the nation of Zimbabwe has had ongoing issues with corruption and hyperinflation. So even though it is a protected site, there is still controversy that sort of broils around it. Yeah, this is uh, when I started working on this, I knew because we mentioned it in our uh, episode about Rhodesia that it was so impressive that, uh, like, the white colonial governments that arrived in the area just assumed that it could not have been built by people actually living there um, and instead cited things like Phoenicians or Egyptians, which, just to remind everyone, Egypt is also in Africa. <laughs> so, like, like, I already knew that piece of it, but I did not realize until I actually got into researching what had happened that, it wasn't so much just just people got there and were like, oh, that probably, like, Phoenicians built that. But it was much, a much bigger effort to classify the site as something that was uh, both not built by sub-Saharan Africans and was related to the Bible. <laughs> that part was news to me when I got into the episode. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. This is an email from Mike. It was about the Winchester Mystery House uh, after uh, that part of our Unearthed in 2016 episode where we ticked through some things that we said uh, were really big names, but maybe not totally verifiable. Yeah. Uh, And we talked about a news article that had come out that we saw in several places, but it all seemed to be referencing the same source that a new room had been found in the Winchester Mystery House. And so Mike writes, I've been listening to the podcast for about two years now, and I love it. I apologize in advance for such a long email generated by such a short mention on the podcast, but this is something I'm very passionate about. Please feel free to edit as needed if you read it on the air. 
In one of the recent Unearthed episodes, you quickly mentioned that a new room had been found at the Winchester Mystery House, but admitted that it, it appeared all the reporting had come from the same initial writing. That's because the initial writing was a press release from the company that owns and runs the tourist attraction. And unfortunately, although it was intended to be tongue-in-cheek, this release was taken quite literally by most news outlets. What the release was actually talking about was a new arcade shooting gallery they built. One of those silly things where you use a light gun, in this case modeled after a Winchester rifle, and when you hit something, the item shakes or a song plays on the piano or a light goes out, etc. Uh, and then Mike goes into some personal detail about how he knows this information, which I'm going to skip. We will leave to say he is a credible source. <laughs> but in the interest of his pi- privacy, I'm not going to go into all that detail. And, and he says that there is a possibility uh, that there could be, at some point, underneath the mansion, uh, something that had later been filled in and excavated, but that otherwise all of the space within the house itself is accounted for. They're not going to find a mysterious extra room because they know where all of the things are. Um, and then comes on with some other interesting uh, facts, which he says, I also have to tell you that the Mist in History episode about the Winchester house from several years ago fell victim to the fact that 99% of the information out there on the subject is based on gossip and hearsay, even reports that were contemporary to Mrs. Winchester. Mrs. Winchester was not a devoted spiritualist. She may have practiced casually, did not fear that the spirits of those killed by Winchester rifles were after her. She did not build the mansion to appease said spirits. Instead, she was an architectural hobbyist with no training who liked to experiment and someone who enjoyed employing local people as a form of philanthropy. If you ever wish to revisit the Winchester Mystery House, or if listeners want to look into it, a great resource is Mary Jo Ignafo's book, Captive of the Labyrinth. Mrs. uh, Ignafo did extensive research and got all of the raw facts correct, although she occasionally falters when forced to extrapolate in the absence of documentation. For the hardcore local resources, uh, History San Jose is in, pos- in possession of two collections of photos and documents, one from Mrs. Winchester's ranch foreman and one from her lawyer. These papers reveal Mrs. Winchester to be someone concerned with business and real estate affairs, family, and philanthropy, particularly her interest in keeping her uh, generous giving anonymous. Not so much with seances and spirits in the number 13. I'm not terribly bothered about the false information always given about Sarah Winchester because without the quirky stories, the mansion probably wouldn't have been saved for posterity. But I also want the truth to get out there. Thanks for providing interesting topics for us with each new podcast. I always look forward to the next one. Sincerely, Mike. Thank you so much, Mike. That is delightful to learn. Yes. Uh, and, and I similarly, uh, I mean, I've never been to the Winchester Mystery House but I know it is a very popular attraction. Uh, and so I can, I can sympathize with the idea that, um, that the stories around it were very attractive in having it preserved. Yeah, for sure. Uh, even though they, there is some embellishment going on. That's not uh, uncommon for historical places. I mean, when we've talked about allegedly haunted places before, mm-hmm. you find out often that the actual story is a little more mundane than what usually, you know, draws people's attention. Well, and it reminds me a bit of uh, you and I went to Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, it was last year at this point. Uh, and we filmed some video at the House of the Seven Gables, which you can find on our website. 
But one of the things that we talk about in that video is how the uh, the book, The House of Seven, Gable, Seven Gables, was based on the house, but the house didn't actually match up what was in the book. So when the house became a tourist attraction uh, to support the work of a settlement house in the area, so it was a charitable effort, um, It the, some of the work that was done on it uh, brought it more into line with the fictitious representation of it. So it was like a house and then a fiction and then... Uh, a slightly renovated house. A slightly renovated house that still has like a lot of very true and accurate history to talk about, but also has some things that have uh, been added on for the sake of having it be a, a place that people who are interested in that book uh, would want to come see. Yeah. Uh, those are both things that led to preserving a site, not to destroying it <laughs> as with Great Zimbabwe. So... Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, uh, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at Missed in History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest and at Instagram at Missed in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, where I think there's a whole thing there about the Winchester Mystery House. Uh, and you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find an archive of every episode we've ever done and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done. Uh, that video that we just uh, mentioned um, from the House of Seven, Seven Gables is there, as well as three other videos that Holly and I made after our trip in October. So you can do all of that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey.